China has emerged as one of the 21st century's most consequential nations, making it more important than ever to understand how the country is governed. Welcome to Pekingology, the podcast that unpacks China's evolving political system. I'm Jude Blanchett, the Freeman Chair in China Studies at CSS, and this week I'm joined by Evan Medeiros, the Penner Family Chair in Asia Studies at Georgetown University. During the Obama administration, Evan was on the staff of the National Security Council as Director for China, Taiwan, and Mongolia, and then as Special Assistant to the President and Senior Director for Asia. Today we'll be discussing his recent report, The New Domestic Politics of U.S.-China Relations, which was published by Asia Society's Center for China Analysis. Evan, thanks for joining the podcast. Great to be here, Jude. Evan, we normally ask guests how they got to where they are today, how their career started and progressed. You recently did that on the Asia Chessboard with, with Mike Green and myself, so we won't torture you by asking the same question. I wonder if I, instead I can move to the next question I was going to ask you, and, and we now ask guests on Pekingology, which is for a recommendation or a suggestion on a, a heuristic or a mental tool that you believe is helpful for analyzing or understanding China. And just for listeners, as we roll out this relatively new feature of the podcast, if anyone's ever read or, or heard Dan Dennett at Tufts talk about intuition pumps, they're essentially mental tools that allow us to make sense of complex phenomena. And so recently asked on the podcast, Andrew Batson, for a, a recommendation of a heuristic, which I thought was good. And, and Evan is a another great guest to ask this question. So Evan, what's a mental shortcut or tool that you might recommend to individuals as they try to make sense of China? Well, Jude, as you know, I came to study China first and foremost through my interest in international security issues. As a child of the 80s, I was really interested in arms control and then nonproliferation. And beginning in the 90s, when I went to grad school, tacked on China studies, started learning Chinese later in life and steeping myself in Chinese history, politics, foreign policy, and of course, Marxism and Leninism to really understand how the CCP operates. So for me, I've always tried to combine sort of a functional expertise in international security studies with a regional expertise in China. So that's a long way of saying the heuristic that I found most important Though I'm not sure I'd call it an intuition pump, largely because that term sounds a little scary to me and maybe even a little painful. But the heuristic that I often use when I'm trying to explain, if not predict, Chinese actions is trying to identify what are the competing interests or priorities Chinese leaders are trying to reconcile. And it's often multiple ones. I see Chinese behaviors often as the result of a tension or a contradiction between two or even three or more interests, material or non-material. And Chinese behaviors often result from the leadership resolving, not resolving, balancing these competing priorities, or more often than not, just deciding to kick the can down the road and see if they can sort of muddle through. So I guess my heuristic, to put it succinctly, is about identifying multiple competing priorities, and then try to figure out how the government is configured politically, bureaucratically to manage these tensions or contradictions. And I'll give you a few examples. I recently wrote in a paper about key tensions or contradictions in Chinese foreign policy today. Examples include the tension between identity and interests, the tension between 
an identity as a major power versus an identity as a developing country. The tension between support for the rules-based order and all the benefits that affords China versus China's effort for an alternative order that gives China greater freedom of action. The tension, which you've talked a lot about in your podcast between economic development and national security, related to that, the tension between interdependence and self-reliance. And then lastly, sort of very practically, the tension between macroeconomic stability and resource security. So that's sort of a heuristic that I find useful. Can I ask a follow-up, which is you've studied Chinese decision-making for decades, but also you've seen it up close in your role at the NSC. How do you think about how this competing interest framework differs between, for example, policymaking in the US on China versus Chinese policymaking? I'm imagining, having not been a policymaker, there are competing interests in the United States government as well that need to be reconciled. Is that just a, a generic framework that you bring to thinking about how governments make decisions? Or is there something unique about that competing interest framework as it pertains to China that is really distinct from policymaking in the US? Well, that framework was meant to describe Chinese decision-making on economic issues, political issues, foreign policy issues, right? as opposed to a framework for understanding U.S. policy toward China. Because, of course, I agree, U.S. policy toward China is this constant effort to reconcile multiple and competing interests, for sure. My point was, when I look at trying to understand Chinese behavior, both domestic behavior and foreign policy behavior, I see them as really struggling with these competing priorities. And the competition tends to be pretty significant. In other words a lot of diverging interests. And so the reason this heuristic I find to be useful is because when you're trying to say, why is China doing this? Why is Xi Jinping, for example, right now only providing the most minimal of policy support to the economy, right? As, every, as global investors are yelling and screaming about wanting signals for more policy support, you have to ask yourself, well, what exactly is it that Xi Jinping what are the priorities he's trying to balance? And then that leads to further questions about, okay, who are the bureaucratic actors, that sort of thing. So it's meant to give you a framework for how to begin answering the question about why is Xi Jinping doing something that on its face looks counterintuitive and even counterproductive. I think we'll discuss this when we get into the report, but while I'm thinking of it, does this competing interest heuristic, has that become more or less important to you as we see Xi Jinping assume more power and control? I would think 15 years ago under the Hu administration where you had not competing interests, but lots of competing actors with more policy autonomy over some of those competing interests, it might be more fractious. Does the competing interest framework still hold as true today as it did 15 years ago when you have a singular leader who might be able to say, cut through bureaucratic competing interests and identify one key interest? Or do you even think for Xi Jinping, he has, even in his own priority set, multiple competing interests he has to adjudicate? So I think now it's more relevant than it was before. And so when I say competing interests, what I'm trying to highlight is I think that there are often tensions or contradictions, right? In other words, it's not simply competing interests. It's competing interests where the trade-offs are particularly costly maybe tension or con identifying a tension or a contradiction. 
But I think those are more prominent today than they were under Jiang Zemin and Hu Jintao, simply because Xi Jinping has, I believe, a different set of priorities, which is one of the things that I try and bring out in my study about the domestic politics of US-China relations. So not just are the priorities competing, but the tensions and contradictions, I think, are even more evident today because of Xi Jinping's vision for China, his vision for China politically, economically, diplomatically, and even even militarily. So the report, which came out late last year and is really fantastic and, and comprehensive, the title of it is The New Domestic Politics of U.S.-China Relations. I wanted to first, before we get into the report itself, just ask what was the motivating reason behind this? I'm curious, you know, there's been a lot written about, or at least there's been a lot of discussion about the role of, of U.S. politics increasingly shaping U.S.-China relations. So these all these strands are out here. What were the key gaps or shortcomings in the existing discussion that you wanted to address? So there was a gap, and it was a gap on both sides of the equation, and then a gap connecting the two. So there was no study or even journal article out there talking about the diversity of domestic political forces in the United States influencing the U.S.-China relationship. From time to time, there have been articles about the role of Congress, right, but not looking at the diversity of domestic political forces in the United States. And the principal argument, you know, as a result of looking at both the U.S. and China is that the domestic political context in both countries have evolved substantially, and nobody has either explained it or discussed the implications. So in part, I thought there was a big gap on the US side. I thought there was an equally big gap on the Chinese side. Because remember, I'm looking, trying to connect domestic politics to the US-China relationship. You and I, in fact, have written many times about changes in domestic politics in China. That's not the question. The question is, of those changes you and I have documented, which ones do I think are materially affecting the US-China relationship? So it was... Nobody had looked at either the U.S. or the Chinese piece as it applies to U.S.-China. And then, importantly, it was connecting the two. Because I think oftentimes in the debates in the United States, you would have scholars stand up and say, oh, it's the dysfunctional Congress, it's public opinion. And what I wanted to bring out in the report is just as America has its domestic politics, so does China. In other words, there's plenty of responsibility to spread around. There are different dynamics in both countries, but domestic political dynamics in both countries influencing the relationship, right? So when I looked at the United States, it wasn't just Congress, as important as that is. I looked at congressional politics, electoral politics, interest group politics, bureaucratic politics, and public opinion, right? So there's many layers to understanding how the American political dynamic is changing. And then in China, it's harder to look, it's very hard to look at bureaucratic politics or China, even interest group politics. But you can certainly look at Xi Jinping. You can look at institutions. You can look at processes. You can certainly look at ideas. And so I did, right? And what I found was the complexion of domestic political actors, the ideas promoted by them, their channels of influence have changed dramatically and will continue to do so. I really wanted to produce a study that was sort of the global state of the art of what's going on in both countries. Because I felt like if you just focus on the US, it would be, oh, it's all the, you know, it's all political dysfunction in the United States, which is inaccurate and unfair. 
listeners should go download the whole report. Um, and we'll put a link to it in the show notes. We're, we are, for reasons of time, but also to stay consistent with the theme of this podcast, we're going to basically ignore the first 60 pages, which are great and, and incredibly enlightening, which discuss dynamics in the United States. And instead, we're going to look at the the back half of the report, which explores new political dynamics in China. I wanted to ask you just a conceptual question, though. It might seem odd to many listeners that we're using the word politics and domestic politics to talk about China. As you and I, this discussion that has occurred so far, all we've been talking about is basically, you know, Xi Jinping. I think most people would assume that the country is moving increasingly towards the direction of dictatorship where centralization of power, the thoughts, intentions, assumptions, and judgments of, of one man and Xi Jinping matter more than anything else. So when you say politics, and especially domestic politics in China, what do you mean by that? And how does that differ from how we use the word politics to discuss decision-making and policy-making in the United States? That's such an important question. And it's one that I've struggled with my entire professional career. And some of the work that we did, the two articles we wrote previously, Jude, you know, helped crystallize my thinking. So I mean, to be very clear, of course, China has politics. It has its own politics. It has party politics, so CCP politics. There's elite politics. There's bureaucratic politics. There's interest group politics. And there's public opinion. Now, the extent to which one can actually document those is a challenge, as you know, as a China watcher. I don't have the same level of granularity on the analysis of the Chinese side as you do on the US side, right? You can't get into the Chinese interagency process, or I wasn't, wasn't able to do so. But yet you can still look at a lot of elements of elite politics and CCP politics, to some extent, interest group politics. So with the CCP, for example, you can talk about what the CCP's priorities are, what are the ideas of the top leader, how are they promoted? What campaigns are being run? In terms of elite politics, you can talk about how issues are being debated. For example, it's well known that there's a lot of discontent among the Chinese elites about China's Russia policy. So China has its own politics too. Now, the way I chose to go at it, because I like information and data and I like to be able to document my claims. So the first section on China examines what I call the unique attributes of Xi's thinking and approach to foreign affairs and to the United States, because I thought that was important. He's such an overwhelming personality when it comes to understanding China's US policy. The second section then examines the role of people and institutions and policymaking. And I basically focus on the themes of what I call centralization and personalization of decision-making under Xi to the extent that it affects U.S.-China relations. And the third section is on Xi's policy priorities. These are themes that, Jude, you and I have talked a lot about, the emphasis on self-reliance, the emphasis on national security, and the ways in which that has influenced and will continue to influence the U.S.-China relationship. As we're staying on uh, Xi Jinping a minute, I wanted to ask, as you think about this new these new politics operating in China, especially after the 19th Party Congress, but, but certainly building momentum after the 20th. What is your assessment of, is Xi Jinping a, an ingrained leader who essentially has built a consensus amongst the decision makers and stakeholders who matter? And thus, this is really about, although he is making the key decisions, you basically have most of the big fish 
swimming in the same direction. So we can call that ingrained. The other model is sort of estranged, that Xi Jinping is increasingly using violence and coercion to push the system in a policy direction away from economic growth or balancing economic growth and security, as they would call it, continuing to strengthen or at least maintain the relationship with China. What's your mental model for what politics looks like there? Between those, I realize I've, I've put out two, uh, there's gradations within those two polls. Jude, I see it as both and, not either or. So if you talk about China's Russia policy, I think in the main, it's the first model. I think Xi Jinping has made a strategic choice. He's told the system to move out. The people around him support him. But the foreign policy elites are very uncomfortable with the accumulating costs associated with China's Russia policy. And they're worried where that may take China's relationship with the United States as well as China's broader role in the world. When I look at other aspects of foreign policy, China's positioning toward the global South, China's policy toward the United States, I think there's probably a bit more agreement. Uh, If we were to talk about the emerging debate between development and national security, and specifically how that impacts fiscal and monetary policy today, I would guess that there's a lot more debate. But the reality is, is Xi Jinping is such a dominant political force in this system, and he's so effective at pushing buttons and pulling levers and effectively creating and enforcing incentives in that system that even on economic policy where there's questions about how much self-reliance China should really pursue, I think in the main, there's support for you know Xi's initiatives. What does politics look like to you in the Chinese system when there is lack of clarity on what Xi thinks or Xi has not pronounced on something? We always talk about the issues where we're pretty clear of what Xi Jinping's direction of travel is, right? Xi Jinping thought on national security, obviously being one of them, pushed to the global south. The politics there, I can have a sense of sort of how officials try to navigate within that. What is your sense of what politics looks like when there when is lack of clarity on either what Xi Jinping means or he just hasn't he hasn't made it clear exactly or or even weighed in on an issue? So my model would be one of stasis. That's why, you know, I go back to my heuristic, identifying tensions and contradictions. And in some sense, in some instances, when there are evident tensions and contradictions, right? Xi Jinping tells provincial party secretaries, you need to pursue the right balance between security and development as you take in FDI. That doesn't tell a provincial party secretary anything. It puts it in his hands, his or her hands, and they simply have to decide what's right. And so I think that's one of the reasons the economy has underperformed so substantially and why both sentiment, business sentiment, business confidence in China is way down and why investor sentiment is way down is because on key economic policy questions, Xi Jinping is not sending a clear message. I wanted to also ask you, we've mentioned secure national security here, you know, this rebalance of growth at all costs to something else. How would you sketch in the rest of Xi Jinping's clear dominant policy priorities. If he was, I don't, I don't want to mirror US political system in China, but just to provide a simple framework for, for asking the question, if Xi Jinping was running for re-election, what do you think would be on the stub speech about, here's the problems I faced, here's what I fixed, and this is what we need to do in, in the future? 
So I think he would put the China dream and national rejuvenation at the front. He would use as proof the fact that at least officially they've achieved 5% or more growth for every year that he's been in office. I think he would highlight the anti-corruption campaign, which at least anecdotally is popular among the people. He would highlight his emphasis on income equality and social equity. He would emphasize his effort to give people greater access to education and healthcare, his effort to build out social security. I mean, look, you're asking me to advocate for, you know, a guy that that I think has whose agenda has a lot of difficulties. But I think, you know, the way he sees it is that he has a vision. And you and I wrote this in Survival, right? He has a vision, he has ambitions, and he has urgency, and he's carrying that out. And there's elite discontent, but I think there's a baseline level of popular satisfaction with the direction she has taken the country. How do you think about the role of public opinion in the context of Chinese politics. There's there's a lot of good scholarship on this that's been done over the past few decades. There's a lot of academics working in this space. But as someone who has been on the, the inside of policymaking and also been up close to the Chinese leadership, including Xi Jinping, what is your sense of how they how and when and to what extent they factor in public sentiment when adjudicating some of these competing interests to come to a final decision? So I'm going to stick to foreign policy and specifically China's policy toward the United States, because that's what this study is about. And there's very little evidence that it has any substantial impact on Chinese policymaking. This is China's policy toward the United States is the purview of elites, and it really looks like it's a small group of people, Xi Jinping, maybe Wang Huning, Wang Yi, that make their decisions. And that means when the Chinese decide that they want to embrace the fighting spirit and struggle, struggle, struggle. And it also means they can decide at any point to sort of pull back, to open up channels of dialogue, to embrace a modicum of restraint, which is what they're doing right now. So I see very little role for public opinion. So when the Chinese interlocutors say that we should be thankful that China's response to Nancy Pelosi's visit was so moderate because the quote Chinese people wanted Beijing to shoot down her plane. You, you don't find you don't find that that is a credible statement of how they were the Chinese leadership was is being pressured by the public. Correct. I do not. <laughs> There's plenty of instances where the public supported something and they did something different. Public opposed it and they did it anyway. Right across a range of foreign policy issues. Now, hyper-nationalist issues like China-Japan relations under Jiang Zemin, there's some pretty good research that's been done that would suggest that that may have been a constraint on decision-making, but even then, it's subject to debate. I know you said you were going to focus on foreign policy, but if I could ask a question, did you find it puzzling then the timing of the reversal on zero-COVID policy fairly soon after a series of nationwide you know, protests. Does that show to you, just thinking about politics more broadly in China, that the leadership is responsive to some amount of public frustration? Now, obviously, the scale of that was unique and, and exactly why that stood out in the media was really covering it here. But does that tell you something about 
that they are responsive to some amount of public pressure? That's a complicated example. In many ways, I see it, Jude, as the exception that proves the rule, right? In other words, let's say I really don't like to eat broccoli, right? And I just never eat broccoli. But if you put a gun to my head and say, I'm going to shoot you if you don't eat broccoli, then guess what? I'm probably going to eat broccoli, right? But does that really tell you that much about my general disposition toward green vegetables, right? So it does not surprise me, given the scale and the intensity of the popular protests against zero COVID, that they abandoned it and abandoned it quickly. Does that mean that there's some new renaissance within the Communist Party to pay attention to public opinion? No. So if your question is, if there's an event in the U.S.-China relationship in the future that brings people to the street, yes, I think the CCP will pay attention to that. But that, I don't think that, that tells you that much about public opinion because it's such a unique and exceptional circumstance. It's also interesting to me that despite that set of events, it doesn't seem to have hampered Xi Jinping very much politically. There's not not a lot of evidence of weakness, and he hasn't really backed off some of his policies that were somewhat controversial, like in the economic policy space. I was listening to a podcast the other day with a Chinese Taiwan expert at one of the Chinese think tanks, and he mentioned a line that you often hear the Chinese say, which is that no Chinese leader can afford to lose Taiwan. I wanted to ask you, when you hear something like that as a as an analyst, obviously there's the attempt to use these sorts of framings to essentially signal to the United States and other actors that essentially the Chinese the are, are, are all in, right? The stakes right. are sky right. high. So I wanted this is a question, you know, I think for a lot of you know, some of us more generalists who are just trying to assess what's happening underneath the hood. Is a statement like that to you purely one about verbal positioning to signal to external actors again, as you just said, the stakes are that high? Or do you think there's something to that in terms of the sorts of pressures a leader would face if it looks like an issue that they've identified as a core interest is sort of slipping away? And the reason I'm asking this is, if there's some of the latter, under Xi Jinping, where is that pressure coming from? So you're asking me, we're a little bit far afield from the new domestic politics of US-China relations here. So you're sort of asking me to speculate, where would that come from? I guess what I'm trying to get is, I'm trying to understand political dynamics that surround decision-making in China by taking a real extreme example, which is, this is the core of core interests for China. This is, as they say over and over again, US-China relations, the very, you know, the most sensitive, important issue is this. And we essentially will risk everything for this issue. Now, some of that is BS. But let's imagine there's some amount of that which indicates that leaders across time assess that Taiwan is such a visible issue that that they do have to they have to at least have a veneer that they're driving towards progress. If they do feel that, why? I guess is my question. Where does the pressure come from? Is your question, Jude? Better way of asking it. Yeah, I think the pressure comes from within the party. I think it comes from within the Central Committee and even the Politburo. You may recall some really wonderful reporting around the time of the negotiation of the Trump-Xi Jinping trade agreement. And the Trump administration, Lighthizer and Liu He had negotiated agreement. Liu He took it back to Beijing and couldn't sell it. The Politburo rejected it. Now, I don't know exactly the rack and stack of who did what, who said what among the 25 Politburo members, but there was a lot of resistance and pushback to the agreement. And 
that forced Lil Hu to sort of scrap it and go back to the negotiating table. So that's a well-accepted, well-documented example. And that always resonated with me as a good example of how the party debates controversial issues. And I think we can all agree that the Taiwan issue and the prospect of Taiwan fading away is probably a lot more, the stakes are a lot higher for the CCP than signing you know, a trade agreement with Donald Trump. I think it comes from within the party and the party would be discussing and debating issues. But as you know, with the Taiwan issue, context is everything. And so if the situation were a leader of Taiwan pushing, 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 and the PRC not pushing back, you could imagine a lot of criticism of the leader. But as you've often pointed out, the guy who gets to be the leader in the first place always comes with a set of software uploaded in him that predisposes him to always be vigilant about the Taiwan issue. Yeah. You know, to me, just to finish off, to me, the interesting thing when Chinese scholars make statements like that is I always like to ask them about periods in which the Chinese sort of stake out red lines, but then when things don't go their way, the party's impressive ability to reframe issues in ways that preserve their legitimacy, but also allow them to compromise. And the question becomes, if there's a conflict over Taiwan and the PRC finds itself on the losing side of it, right, does it go for broke or does it sort of, you know, pull back and recalibrate? I am impressed, though, that Beijing's ability to frame issues and the lack of space it has, the the purported lack of space it has for compromise, how effective that language is globally and how good they are or how short the memory span is of, of many of us of, of how much they have shifted their position, compromised on extraordinarily key issues where they had set out a, a bound of red lines, which they have transgressed and then found a way to normalize it. So that is one of the great attributes of, of opacity and having total control over the information system is the ability to reframe a loss as something else. Evan, there's a lot in this report. We've only sort of scratched the surface, but looking at the clock here, I wanted to end by asking you uh, your takeaway from doing this, which is in the back of the report, of course, tying these two together. But what is your big so what from the report in terms of your prognostication for where US-China relations goes? And I, I especially curious your thought on what the direction of travel is in China, I guess if I can ask a two-parter, number one is your sense of where Xi Jinping wants to take China's America policy. And as a second question, what possibilities open up for you in the US-China relationship in a post-Xi era? How much of this do you think is now enduring truths in China's view of the world, or at least the leadership's view of the world? And how much is open to debate and discussion should there be some sort of change at the top? Those are great questions, Jude. So on your first question, sort of my big bottom takeaway is we've entered a new era of the US-China relationship where domestic political dynamics in both sides have changed a lot. The current configuration suggests that domestic politics may be just import- as important as geopolitics in influencing the trajectory of America's China policy and China's US policy. So I think it's important for us to pay as much attention to the perceptions, the actors, the processes, the incentives in both sides. The thought bubble above my head is, 
there are two fundamental conditions necessary for, let's call it stable coexistence, competitive coexistence between the United States and China. Number one is you need a strategic modus vivendi. It can be either explicit or implicit, but both sides sort of understanding how to manage the competition and how to balance the competing interests on both sides. So you need a strategic modus vivendi. How is this relationship going to operate? And number two, you need a stable domestic consensus. Those two, I think, are necessary and sufficient conditions for reaching that, whatever that end goal of competitive coexistence. Both of them are going to be incredibly difficult to achieve. I think a strategic modus vivendi will be very difficult under Xi Jinping because, you know, as we've talked about, I think he has great ambitions and he's increasingly capable at advancing them. Even though he may have sort of pulled back in the U.S.-China relationship in the last six months, if you're Xi Jinping, you've doubled down, if not tripled down, on your relationship with Russia. You've expanded the BRICS. You've upped the op tempo of your effort to recruit the global South. You've definitely thread the needle on Iran, where you don't have much responsibility and you're not paying too too much cost. So I think if you're Xi Jinping. I just think finding that strategic modus vivendi with the U.S. and a stable domestic consensus is going to be hard because, on the domestic side, whether it's the self-reliance agenda or the national security agenda, those create pressures for pulling apart from the United States, not from managing the interdependence. By pulling apart, what I mean is Xi Jinping's goal, the ideal. I think it will be very difficult for him to achieve it. Will be to turn complex interdependence into something that looks like asymmetric dependence. In other words, in critical resources and commodities, market access, America needs me more than I need them. In a way that I, Xi Jinping, can operationalize it. I think it's going to be very, very difficult to achieve either of those two. And then the second question was. Xi Jinping makes a sudden announcement that in five years that he wants to spend more time at Beidaihe all year round. But let's imagine we have some sort of leadership change. Just generically, how many of the trends right now do you think are just enduring across the strategic elite and stakeholders, and how many of these are really a matter of sort of Xi Jinping's own temperament and worldview? And maybe I know we we may not know, but what's your sense? Yeah, look, I argue in the piece. I mean, the very first section on Chinese politics, it's about Xi Jinping's personal views, and I argue that his views are very clear, very prominent in decision making, and reflected in their U.S. policy. And I think that, unfortunately, for Xi Jinping, there's a real ambivalence about dialogue, negotiation, let alone cooperation, and then the real element necessary for managing competition. Which is adopting some modicum of restraint, strategic restraint. Right. This is the great lesson that the U.S. and the Soviets only learned after a series of crises in the '40s and '50s in the Cuban Missile Crisis. That actually some degree of restraint, verified, can serve your interests. And so I do believe that there are、uh, actors in China that have a greater Belief in the role of dialogue and negotiation. They believe that confidence-building measures and crisis management tools can serve China's interests while also allowing it to protect its interests. And I think there are those forces that think that his self-reliance, slightly autarkic vision, is one that is not good for China's domestic economy, and it's really dangerous for 
the U.S.-China relationship. So nobody knows what comes after Xi Jinping. Maybe it's, you know, it's a Xi Jinping clone. I do think that there's enough questioning and debate among elites that the aperture could open. And as, as we know, the generation after Xi Jinping is the 80s generation, at least the 80s generation, even the 90s generation, who simply have a very different experience of China in the world. Evan, first of all, re- congratulations on a really fantastic report. For listeners, we only discussed the content starting at, I think, a page 40. So there's really robust amount of great analysis throughout this. Thanks for coming on the podcast, Evan, and really appreciated the discussion. Thank you, Jude. Always great to chat. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 